jazzy this morning. Um, hey, welcome. My name is Jamie Borchik. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park. It's great to have you with us. If you've got a Bible, you can find Isaiah chapter 11. Um, it's the passage that was read a moment ago by the Wildebor clan, but uh, some of you may not have caught all of it, so we are going to read it again in a minute. But uh, Isaiah 11 is where we're going to be, and today is uh, the second Sunday in Advent. And Advent is a season in the life of the church where we prepare our hearts for Christmas. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but today is December 4th, which means Christmas is just three weeks away. You've got three weeks till Christmas. It comes really fast, does it not? So if you've got some last minute Christmas shopping to do, you know, go get on that today. Uh, time is short. But all around us this time of year are all kinds of signs of Christmas. Lights and trees and decorations go up all around us. Our music changes, the music we listen to, like all of a sudden Mariah Carey becomes popular again. And uh, ugly sweaters and and, uh, elf hats all of a sudden become stylish, or maybe not. But there are signs of Christmas all around us. And those signs are part of the magic of the season. Those signs which pop up basically starting at Halloween nowadays, they, they point us toward Christmas. They say, hey, Christmas is coming. Get ready. It's coming soon. Get ready. Christmas is coming. It's on its way. That's the point of all the signs. It's to spark anticipation in us for the holiday that's ahead. And while these signs of Christmas may seem a little extra these days, signs of Christmas are actually nothing new. Signs of Christmas have been around for millennia. And as we look at Isaiah 11 today, we're actually looking at one of the many signs of Christmas that God gave his people long before the first Christmas ever happened. The Bible is full of signs like this, promises about the future from God to his people. And during Advent, we often turn to these passages, these scriptures, these signs in order to better understand what Christmas is all about. And the point of our passage today, the point of the sign we're going to look at here in Isaiah 11 is that Christmas itself is actually a sign. Christmas, that there are signs of Christmas all around us, but Christmas itself is actually a sign. So read it with me. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt 
or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Father, as we open your word, as we talk about this today, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you point us to you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This sign, it comes to us in the form of Hebrew poetry. This is a poem that was penned by the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century BC. And this poem makes promises from God to his people. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the image here is of a tree stump. Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the greatest king in Israel's history. So Isaiah pictures the monarchy of Israel as this great tree that has now been cut down to a mere stump. Historically, and you'll see a slide up here, Historically, as Isaiah was writing these words, uh, go back one. There you go. Historically, as Isaiah was writing these words, Israel had divided into two nations. You had Israel in the north, and you had Judah in the south. And, and then a little, um, so you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and both Israel and Judah were being threatened by Assyria. So Assyria was the, the biggest, baddest empire in the ancient world. Um, it's essentially modern-day Iraq, and, and it was the most powerful empire in the ancient world. And Assyria was on the move expanding that empire. And then as Isaiah himself had warned what happened if Israel did not turn back to God, in 722 BC, Assyria came and it conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and it wiped it off the map. And then a little over a century later, Assyria's successor on the world stage, Babylon, which you see on the map as well, Babylon came and did the same thing to Judah. So by 587 BC, the great tree of the Israelite monarchy had in fact been reduced to a stump. There was no king, and the people who were left were sent into exile in a foreign land. And that's why Isaiah talks about a stump here. Now thankfully, most of us have never been and likely will never be forced to endure what ancient Israel had to endure. May not be true for all of us, but for most of us, conquest and exile is not our story. That is not our stump. But that does not mean that we do not have stumps of our own. There are actually stumps all around us. For some of us, it's our family. Going home for the holidays doesn't bring great joy, it just brings tears. For some of us, it's marriage. We dreamed of a fairy tale, but we've woken up to a nightmare. Or we're just not finding marriage at all. It's not happening. For some of us, it's children. We want kids, but we just haven't been able to get pregnant. Or parenting. Like parenting is way harder than we ever thought it would be. Or health. Our bodies just don't work the way that they're supposed to. Or career. We're stuck in a job that we don't like and and it doesn't pay enough to cover the bills. 
or friendships. We feel alone without good friends or we've been abandoned by the friends we're supposed to have or just the world in general. There's all kinds of messed up stuff out there, is there not? There's gun violence and political corruption and poverty and racism and sexual abuse. Even the World Cup, which is happening right now, which is super fun and it's supposed to be this event that brings the whole world together. Like even the World Cup is tainted by corruption and scandal that's all, all, all about it. Martin Luther King Jr. used to talk about the tension that we all, all experience between the oughtness of our highest ideals and the isness of our present reality. And we all experience that tension. Life in this world is not as it ought to be. And even we ourselves don't live up to our, high, our own highest standards. We are not as we ought to be. There are stumps everywhere. And that's where the promises of this passage become especially precious. As we all deal with the brokenness of life in a fallen world, as we deal with the stumps in our own lives, this text offers us hope. Because through Isaiah, God is promising to his people that the stump will one day produce new life. Now, I did not know that this was a thing. I did not know that this was possible. Some of you arborists out there, any arborists, anybody really into trees here? I don't see any hands going up. Okay, so maybe not, but uh, thanks to Granny's Garden on YouTube, I now know that this is a thing, okay? So for many trees, when a tree is cut down to a stump, what happens is it removes all the branches and all the leaves and it makes photosynthesis impossible. The tree can't nourish itself. So you have a stump with no branches, no leaves, no fruit. It looks, from the outside, it looks totally dead. Looks like nothing's happening there. However, you can see this up here. However, within the root system of that tree, the tree has this store of nutrients from which it can still draw. So when it's cut down, the tree goes into crisis mode and it taps into that store of nutrients and it uses those nutrients to push out a fresh shoot that catches the sunlight and allows new life to grow. And that fresh shoot, that sprout, if it's properly tended and given time, it can actually grow and become a whole new tree. And this is the image that Isaiah wants us to have here. Isaiah is promising that though the tree looks dead right now, it will one day produce a new shoot, a new branch that will in due time bear new fruit. Now in verse 2, we learned something important about this new shoot. This shoot is actually a person. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So though the kings of Israel had all failed and though the monarchy had been cut off, Isaiah here is promising that a better king will one day come. Take a look at how Isaiah describes this king. In verse 2, his life will be characterized by God's spirit resting upon him. The verb there means to settle down. And the idea is that this king will be the place where God's spirit hangs out in the world. Now, as a side note, those of you who are familiar with the scene of Jesus' baptism, you might recall that as Jesus came up out of the water, the spirit descended like a dove and came to rest, came to settle down upon him. 
Isaiah is foretelling that moment right here. He goes on to further elaborate on the empowerment the Spirit will provide to the king with three poetic pairs. The first pair express what you could call his ruling attributes, wisdom and understanding. So the king knows what to do. The second pair express the king's practical abilities, counsel and might. So the king makes a good plan and he has the power to actually pull it off, to execute on it. Then the third pair expresses the king's spiritual qualities, knowledge of and fear of the Lord. So the king knows God deeply and relates to God properly. Verse 3 continues, the king delights in the fear of the Lord. So his relationship with God is not a duty, it's not a have to, it's a delight, it's a get to, it's a want to. The king loves God and he actually loves loving God. And because he does, he rules as a king in a way that matches his character. He doesn't judge by outward appearances or by hearsay. No, like the God he fears and follows, he judges with righteousness and equity. You see, this promised king, unlike every ancient king and every modern king that we've ever known, this king is the real deal. He is a king in right relationship with God who knows and does the right thing every single time. Now this week, uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary released its 2022 Word of the Year. And I always find it fascinating when these Word of the Year things come out because it, it, it says something about our culture. And did any of you catch the Word of the Year this year? Did anybody see this this week? So, so the 2022 Word of the Year, what is it? Somebody tell me. Gaslighting. gaslighting. Yes, it is gaslighting. Now, gaslighting, if you're not familiar, some of you older folks, I'll define it, um, Gaslighting is the, I just did a little bit of it right there. Did you catch that? Um, Gaslighting is the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for one's own advantage. The word comes from a popular play back in the 1930s about a marriage that was based on lies and deceit where the lead character tries to convince his wife that she's going insane. And the gas lights that light up their home are actually part of the deception. Now, the dude who wrote the play... He had no idea how relevant the concept of gaslighting would become nearly a century later. But nearly a century later, here we are in a society where there is a whole lot of gaslighting that happens all around us. Lots of people in our culture intentionally mislead others, both personally and politically. There's a lot of gaslighting going on. And I bring up gaslighting here to say this. With Isaiah's promised king, there is no gaslighting, right? What you see is what you get. His character is consistent. He is who he claims to be. He does what he says he's going to do. He acts rightly and he judges rightly. He is the real deal. And y'all, that is good news for those who are the victims of gaslighting and all kinds of other injustice. And that is bad news for those who are the perpetrators. Look at the second half of verse 4. Isaiah tells us, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This imagery is vivid and jarring, but the idea is that the king will bring cosmic justice into the world. See, right now we live in a world where justice is an ideal. It is an ought 
that we cry out for, not an is that we actually experience. Right now, protests are part and parcel of life in our fallen world. There are always protesters somewhere in the world protesting something. Even right this minute, you could probably get on your phone and Google protests in Chicago, and you could probably find some protest happening somewhere in our city right now that you could go to and take part in. Because in our world, protest is an is and justice is an ought. But Isaiah promises here that one day the king who sees all and knows all and searches all hearts will mete out perfect justice to all. There will no longer be any need for protest. Those who have been, those who have oppressed will be incriminated. And those who have been oppressed will be vindicated. Justice will be served and the world will be set right. And Isaiah tells us in the second half of verse 4 that that justice will not be violent, it will be verbal. You'll notice here that the rod comes from the king's mouth. The death of the wicked happens by the breath of the king's lips. The king's only weapon is his word. He speaks and justice happens. Isaiah finishes his description of the king in verse 5 by telling us about his clothing. In particular, about his belt. And belts play the role of holding things together. And what holds things together for the king? Righteousness and faithfulness. The king does right only and always. He cannot do wrong because he is utterly right. And he does not waver from what is right because he is utterly consistent. He is righteous and he is faithful. And church, this is the shoot that comes from the stump. When you go to the voting booth, this is the kind of ruler you want, but you never find. Like this guy is not on the ballot. But this is the better king that Isaiah promises. This is the shoot. But this is not all that Isaiah promises. Not only does he describe a better king, but he also describes a better world. When the king comes, the world itself will be utterly transformed. The king won't make the world just a little bit better. He's not like a politician who has a platform that he's going to come and, and pass legislation and make things a little bit better. No, he does, he's got way more in store than just that. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf lie down together. These are animals who typically kill and eat each other. And what are they doing now? They're snuggling. They're taking a nap together. Like predators and prey are at peace with one another. And who does Isaiah say is taking care of this new kind of zoo? A little child. Like Archer, my three-year-old son, is like tending this zoo. You know, there's a great Hebrew word that captures what's happening here. It's the word shalom. And shalom literally translates peace. But it's not just peace in the sense of not being at conflict. It's not like two countries aren't at war. It's not that kind of peace. No, it's peace in the sense of wholeness and flourishing. It's peace in the sense that everything is as it ought to be. The is has become the ought. That is shalom. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that this zoo of shalom that we see in verse 6 is not temporary but enduring. Cows and bears alike now graze. 
Lions and oxen alike now eat straw. So animals aren't eating each other. Instead, they're sharing vegetarian meals. And not only are the parents hanging out together, but so too are their kids. Their young lie down together. So their very natures have changed. And that change is hereditary. It's passed on to the next generation. And then look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is a picture of serpents and children experiencing shalom together. Now, some of you here today, you know your Bibles, and you know that the story of the Bible begins with shalom. In the beginning, God and people and the whole of creation are at perfect peace. Everything is as it ought to be. It's all good in the hood. But then you also know that just three chapters into the Bible, in Genesis 3, that shalom is shattered. And do you remember how that shattering happens? A serpent comes into the garden and tempts our first parents. The snake tells them that God is not good, that God is actually holding out on them and keeping the best things from them. And our first parents, they listen to the serpent, and they believe that lie, and they take the forbidden fruit, and shalom is shattered. And ever since then, we have lived in a world of stumps and serpents where the isness of our present life does not match the oughtness of what it ought to be. And in our world, if a child plays over the hole of a serpent, the serpent bites. That's the world we live in. Now, way back in Genesis 3.14, immediately after the shattering, God curses the serpent. And then he goes on to say in Genesis 3.15, which you should see up here, he goes on to say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So God says here that there will be a perpetual conflict between serpents and children. Snakes will bite the descendants of the woman. That is the curse. That is life in the fallen world. Stumps and snake bites. But then look at the end of verse 15. He, a singular descendant of the woman, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The camera lens of history zooms in on one human descended from that first woman. One singular child who somewhere down the line of history will come into the story. And the snake will bite that child. And that bite will hurt. It will bruise. But it will hurt like a bruise on your heel. And yet what is that child going to do to the serpent? The child is going to stomp on the serpent's head and lift the curse once and for all. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium. The first gospel. Because in this verse, we see the first promise in Scripture of what Jesus would go on to accomplish on the cross. He would be bit by Satan, the ancient serpent, and he would suffer brutally even unto death. 
And yet through his suffering, he would crush the serpent and thereby end the curse for all time. Isaiah, in our passage today, is envisioning that day. From a distance, he's seeing the day when the curse is no more and the world is set right. As verse 9 tells us, On that day, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. On that day, hurt and destruction, which so plague our world right now, on that day, hurt and destruction are no more. Everything sad has come untrue. Stumps are replaced with fruitful trees. All is well. All is right. All is shalom. And y'all, this is what we long for. In a fallen world, all of us go through life longing for this better world. And Isaiah tells us here that that, in fact, is where our story ends. That's where the story is going. Four. In verse nine, four. And here's the source of that shalom. Here's where it comes from. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In verse 2, the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord rested upon one person, the better king. But here in verse 9, the knowledge of the Lord is absolutely everywhere. It is so pervasive in the world that we're literally swimming in it. And church family, that is exactly how it ought to be. That is what God made us for, to know him fully, to swim around in the knowledge of him. That is what the world was like before the serpent came into the story. That was Genesis 1 and 2. And the primary thing we lost when Shalom was shattered was that kind of knowledge of God. But Isaiah promises here that one day, one day the world will be saturated with the knowledge of God all over again. And so look at the final verse in our passage today. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that great and final day, the nations of the world will return to the better king. His resting place, his home, will be full of glory. That is how the story ends. The king and his people together again in glory. And look at how it happens in this verse. Back in verse one, we saw a promise about a shoot emerging from the stump of Jesse. This whole passage has been telling us about that shoot. And yet now we see Isaiah calling that shoot the root of Jesse. Isaiah is not talking about two different people here. He's referring to the same person as both the shoot and the root. And it begs the question, how can one and the same person be both the shoot that comes out from Jesse and the root from which Jesse comes? How can one person be at the base of the family tree as the root and come out of that family tree as a shoot? Do you see the puzzle in this promise? Isaiah has made all of these promises about the king and his future glory, the glorious future that he'll bring about. And yet in this passage, all of those promises hinge on this puzzle. A person who is both root and shoot of the same family tree. How can such a thing be possible? 
Well, as we progress from Isaiah in the 8th century down through the story of history, the pieces of this puzzle never seem to fit. Through the ups and downs of 700 plus years, the puzzle never seems to come together. Until at last, we come to the 1st century A.D., And a young woman living in the very same region where eight eight centuries earlier, Isaiah had made his poetic promises. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, we are told that an angel came to that girl with a message. The angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. So this son, he is God's direct son. One with God from eternity past. The root from which every family tree finds its source. And the angel continues. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And so at the very same time, at the very same time as he is the source, the root, at the very same time he's also a direct descendant of David, a shoot from the family tree of King David, a family tree of Jesse. He's a shoot. And the angel continues. He concludes, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. He will reign over God's people forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will be the better king forever and ever and ever. See, Jesus Christ is the piece that puts the puzzle together. He is both the root support of God's family tree, and he is the savior who shoots out from that tree. See, Jesus came into the world at Christmas to fulfill God's promises and complete the puzzle. The spirit of the Lord rested upon him. His delight was in the fear of the Lord. He lived rightly and he judged rightly. And then he was judged wrongly and he was bit by the snake. He went to the cross and his life was chopped down. And yet, on the third day, new life sprouted from that stump. Jesus walked out of the grave victorious over sin and Satan and hurt and destruction and death itself. And when he did, he inaugurated a new and better world. That world, that better world, is both now and not yet. It is now for all who believe in Jesus. Because when you believe in Jesus, he gives you true knowledge of God and a real restored relationship with God that lasts, that starts right now and lasts for eternity. And when you believe in Jesus, he begins to restore shalom in your life. He begins to put things back to the way they ought to be. He causes sprouts to grow out of stumps. He fixes things that have been shattered. He restores things in your life. And that world, that reality is right now if you believe in Jesus. It starts now. It's yours. And yet that world is still not fully yet. The full restoration of all things is yet to come. Verses 1 through 5 of our passage have happened. But verses 6 through 10 are still yet to be in all of their fullness. Right now in this life, we get little tastes of it here and there. We get little samples, moments where the better world breaks through into the present world, 
But the full-on feast is still yet to come. And in the now and not yet that is the Christian life, we then are like children in the weeks leading up to Christmas morning, waiting for that feast with eager anticipation. Because did you catch what Isaiah said Jesus would be in verse 10? He said he'd be a signal for the peoples. All around us right now are signals of Christmas. There are signs everywhere. But Isaiah tells us here that Christmas itself is a sign. The fact that Jesus has come into the world is a sign to the world. It is a sign that one day all will be made right. It is a sign that the fullness of that better world is on its way. It is a sign that the isness of our present world will in fact one day be replaced with oughtness. And so this Christmas, as you see the many signs of Christmas all around you, may those signs spark within you anticipation of the better world that is yet to come. Whatever the stumps and serpents in your life may be right now, let Christmas remind you that a better day is on its way. Let's pray. Father, I praise you today for this truth. Praise you for Jesus, who is both the root and the shoot of Jesse. That there is life sprouting from that stump. That he is alive, that he is the king, and that he has inaugurated a better day, a better world, a better life. Father, in this season, many of us are carrying around uh, heavy weight. We're feeling the burden of different stumps in our lives the difficulties of life in a fallen world. And I pray that as we experience those things, would we not lose sight of the future hope that we have, of the better hope that Christ has brought for us? Would we be a people who look to that day, to the better world that he will bring with eager anticipation? I pray for those who, who right now uh, may, not, may not have tasted it even yet. Would today be a day where they put their faith in Jesus, where they trust in Christ, they receive him into their lives and where the, the beginning of that new life enters in for them. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would be a people who anticipate that day eagerly and who wait for it, hopefully, knowing that it is sure to come. With this Christmas, spark that anticipation in us. Help us to look to you always. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.